Let's spread a song so you can sing along with one special guest star or two. You like to sing and dance, and this podcast by chance explores musicals for you. everyone welcome back to another episode of life's but a song a podcast that likes to live in the land of musicals i'm your host john and with me today is a friend of the pod who hasn't been on in a while it's colden lamb everyone hello john how are you today i was not expecting the show to be the show which we're here to talk about the the 2018 Teatro Real production of Street Scene. Well, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll talk more about Street Scene as a thing, but we watched the 2018 Teatro Real production. Um, So Street Scene, the book is by Elmer Rice. The music is by Kurt Weil. Lyrics by Langston Hughes. Uh, This production was directed by John... I'm going to fuck it up. Full James? Full, full James? I'm going to go with that. That counts. Yes. Uh, and there is no IMDb summary of this, but according to Wikipedia, the opera takes place on the doorstep of a tenement on the east side of Manhattan on two brutally hot days in 1946. The story focuses on two plot lines, the romance between Rose Morant and her neighbor, Sam Kaplan, and on the extramarital affair of Rose's mother, Anna, which is eventually discovered by Rose's irritable father, Frank. The show portrays the ordinary romances, squabbles, and gossips of the neighbors as the mounting tensions involving the Marant family eventually build into a tragic and epic proportions. Yep, sounds like an opera. Have you seen the play? The play or the 1932 film on which the play is based? I have not. Well, the play came first. Correct. Play... I have not seen the play. Yeah. I don't think the play gets produced anymore because of this. Because of the opera? Because of the opera. It's like it's like saying, have you seen The Matchmaker? And you're like, no, because I could go watch Hello, Dolly any day of the week. Well, I mean, I was just because I was watching this. And I was like, first of all, this is an operetta. I'm not calling it an opera. There's too much dialogue, spoken dialogue, to call it an opera, in my opinion. Well, Dizeba Fluta, or the Magic Flute, has dialogue, and some people consider that an operetta rather than an opera. So I understand where you're coming from. Yes. (laughs) But I was just like, why is this an opera? Like, the story, I don't think, lends itself to be an opera. I think it's, I think it works as, I think it could work as a musical, but there are some moments where I was just like, well, there are some arias, to use an operatic term, in here that I was just like, I don't understand why you're here. Well, um, the thing is with street scene is that you need opera singers uh, who can sing these really high pieces, like mm-hmm. Somehow I Never Could Believe or the uh, Ice Cream Sextet. You can't give that to, you know, a musical theater performer and ask him to sing the sextet the same way you could with an opera singer but I, i'm mostly wondering why they decided to make it an opera and not a musical the story i mean i think that the story is operatic enough with the the, the tragedy that happens with the morant family that i don't see it as any other way except 
an opera. And I think the story fits well for the category. Um, there are some musical theater elements in it, very much so. But I think Court Vile, um, the composer, really wanted to experiment um, with taking an American story and building up uh, musical theater more as not as musical theater as we know it today, but using music to develop theater. Interesting. Because um, it, it does feel like <laughs> I know we're in like this production is in Spain and they are not the greatest with the American accents or accents period, but it feels like the show is like a European look into what American life was at the time. Cause it felt a little, if it, I don't, it felt, it, it didn't feel true, but it felt true at the same. <laughs> like it was, it was like a parody like <clears throat> like how Scream is a parody of horror movies, but it's also a horror movie. This felt like they were making fun of, like there was a parody of American Life, but also it was American Life because I believe Elmer Rice, the book writer, is American? Question mark? Well, all of them are American. Kurt Vile is an American, and Langston Hughes was an American, and Elmer Rice was, so I think... <laughs> think it's, it's as american as apple pie <laughs> um but we get when we got to moonfaced and starry-eyed i was just like why is this here i don't who, who are these people i don't because are they are they part of the the tenement are they i i get it that they're kind of world building with a lot of these other songs and arias but like that one i was just like this just derails me, me from what's happening Yes. Well, two things. The first one is the girl who sings and dances Moonface Starry-Eyed is the daughter of the, the main gossipy neighbor in the tenement. And also, as you will note, and this is something we can talk about, um, when they were working on Street Scene, the producer of the original production told Court Vile, hey, can we have some pick-me-up numbers? Can you write like a Rogers and Hammerstein number? Can I you write like it. a a boogie woogie number and he's like fine i'll write it and you'll notice that after every single major dramatic moment there is like a a pick-me-up number so right after uh mr morant's angry aria let things be like they always was you go into a rogers and hammerstein wrapped in a ribbon and tied in a bow and right after the rose's dramatic aria what good would the moon be you go straight into a a boogie woogie moon face starry-eyed because I, I I did write down that this felt like too darn hot, you know, like how too darn hot in Kiss Me Kate is supposed to wake the audience up and everything. That's what it felt like, Moonface and Starry Eyed. Yeah. <laughs> and it, now it could be that they were Court Vile loved Porgy and Bess, and he when he came to America and he first saw Porgy and Bess, he's like, I want to do that. So that was him playing with the jazz idiom and mixing opera with jazz. And um, so that's what I think Moonface Starry Eyes. And also it's the, hey, can you write like a couple of happy numbers for us so we can sell some sheet music? Thanks. Because this felt like, the music in this felt like it was inspired by and was the inspiration for like 
other properties. Like I got a little West Side out of this. Well, this uh, what? Well, yes, very much so. Street Scene was the first, one of the first, excuse me, um, musicals or American operas to have dancing in a New York street 10 years before West Side. But uh, I mean, like, melodically, there's some things that I was like, oh, this kind of sounds like, uh, so, like, it, like what uh, Bernstein was inspired by to write in West Side or very much classical meets yeah a american pop idiom yeah um so <laughs> i don't know where to start i hate i hate easter first of all the guy the character i hate him well hate him so hard you're supposed I, to <laughs> yeah that's the thing with a lot of these characters i think outside of mrs morant and rose and sam and even uh mr morant you're supposed to hate every single one of those people in that tenement they are awful human beings Yes. And that's yeah, and, what makes it the delicious drama when you have these very kind souls being tormented by the nasty uh, tenement people around them. Like you hear them and get a load of that. I think that was like the. What do you mean pick a little, talk a little? Yes. I was literally about to say that. I was like, this is the pick a little ladies. There are the gossiping neighbors that, uh, you know, talk about everything. And then. Like there were, mo I'm not gonna lie. There are moments that I checked out on this because opera and I have a sordid history. Yeah, what, uh, what do you like opera or American opera at all? Um, okay, so I worked for an opera house for five years, so I was exposed to a ton of opera. I always feel like though, whenever it's translated into English or whenever it's an English-based one, it sounds a little off or weird to me. I don't know why. I, I don't understand it, but it's just it. I think it's something with how it's sung. It just sounds better in another language to me. That's, That's that. But this is all just me and my my thoughts on it. So because like we've done, we did a couple of American uh, written or English written operas, and it was always just like, what is that? Like you, I don't. The cacophony of sound that it, that happens with the english language and them belting those high notes <laughs> little dissonance in my ears i think with this one because there's just too many people it detracted me from like what was important and what was what i should be following because like it's a huge cast <laughs> in in this production like you have a whole children's choir at one point for i guess another like pick me up number yeah well it was like well we need to start act two and welcome everyone back let's put in a, a kid's chorus although there was it was funny and there's a moment in that number where they all pull out handkerchiefs and there's one girl who's clearly like dead center of the frame and of the shot and everything and she doesn't have one and i was like girl what are you doing get your hanky <laughs> that's, that's just that's not a lousy point. actress that's a lousy prop manager well also <laughs> i feel like a lot of these people are better singers than actors that's usually how it is in opera land yeah and the opera world is now facing the problems of you also have to act as well as sing and uh -huh. i have to say that for this uh production of street scene there are some really good actors I'm sure they're opera singers first, but I could tell that they are, are trying to act 
and emote and just go beyond parking and barking. Oh my God. What's her name? Uh, Patricia Reset, who played Anna. Like, my God. Great. I love her portrayal as Mrs. Morant. It's so heartbreaking. You understand where she's coming from. Yes. Um, and but like, she feels like a mom. She fe- And what's great about it is that they cast people who actually look like they would be parents or, or in this time period. It wasn't like, it wasn't like, you know, how I hate to even bring this up, how Broadway is kind of like, or how Broadway has been fat phobic where they are like only skinny ripped in shape people. This one, it seems like they just cast people based on talent. But that, but also an opera, that's the thing that it is all about the voice. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what you look like as long as you have the most fantastic voice in the world. Yeah. And like, it was a little bit like that. Just a a tiny bit more. (laughs) Cast the talent, not the figure. (laughs) What a novel concept. I'll drink to that. (laughs) Um, so like the point of this is is also the perception of things because like you see rose with easter and she's like fighting him off but the neighbors are gossiping because like her mom is having an affair so obviously she's having an affair but really i didn't get that with this production at least is that like the case i mean i got it across there's also one of the there's like a nasty tenement boy um, oh, also, God. this is Rose. He's t- he's a p- piece of crap. Um, and I really got the point across that the neighbors just abuse the Morants be- and abuse Rose because of what her mom is doing. To me, the the that nasty tenement lady, I forgot what her name is, but the tenement neighbors themselves, I think they're the message of the play, which is about like how toxic uh, gossip can be and. I mean, we see that all the time nowadays on social media, just toxic. Or as Colleen Ballinger would say, all aboard the toxic train. Did Are you, you talking that? about Emma Jones, the character yeah, Emma Jones? Joneses. The Joneses, forget Mr. Morant, the Joneses are the true villains of this play. They don't learn anything. They get away with, Miss, Mrs. Jones makes some terrible, nasty side comments that just right. make you want to sock her in the face. And then at the end of the play, after everything that happens, Rose goes off and she goes, well, there goes Rose. I guess she's going to end up just like her mother. And I'm like, have you learned anything from this? Have you have you have no heart? And there's also I think she's the reason why Rose Rose dies, because Sam says, Mrs. Jones, get Mrs. Moran, get Mrs. Moran. And Mrs. Jones like, what is it? What is it? Instead of. Saying going up there and listening to what Sam says, she has to know the gossip first on why to go up. And it's because of that time passes and Mrs. Morant gets killed. Mrs. Yeah. Jones is the real villain of this damn opera, not but, Mr. Morant. But then also her son is that douchebag that, that you're talking about. Yeah. And where does the son learn it from? Well, and even and like he does the thing that happens a lot with this type of character where he's like, oh, I'm this innocent boy. I didn't, you know, provoke her or grab her ass. How many middle school bullies are just like that? They're complete jerks, but they're like, "Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. 
I didn't right. do it. But then you have uh, Shirley Kaplan, who's also kind of a a condescending voice of the building. Which one is Mrs. Kaplan again? She is the sister of Sam. Yes. And Ooh. she stirs up a... Well, I... She makes the, the the second act interesting because you understand that, like, she is making sure that the American dream happens for Sam and that she slaved away at a horrible job to make sure that Sam goes to college and Sam has yes. a good track in life. And she knows how easily he gets distracted. Um, And I can imagine being in her position, being like, hey, you like my brother, but uh, you got to stay away because I well, worked half my life to make his life good. You know, it, she's it, in a risky position. Especially when she's like, I'm trying to keep him away from you people. Now, I don't know what she means with by the term you, if it's like, uh, because she, because her mom is having an affair and people are talking about Rose having an affair with a married man, but that's not true. Or if it's like, because they are, uh, the Kaplans are Jewish family, so I didn't know if it was like Jewish versus not Jewish or Catholic or whatever. Like, it was, it, I feel like this is also a product of its time the with the dialogue or well, words. How many Karens nowadays still use nasty racial slurs? And it's like, it's the, it, it yeah, it is the product of its time, but it's also still happening. <laughs> That's and that that is one of the main reasons I wanted to talk about this for the yeah. podcast. Just a little background: Court Vile's work, with the exception of his German ones, his American works are virtually forgotten, uh, like Lady in the Dark and Firebrand of Florence and uh, Lost in the Stars, only because they are so heavy, he- heavily placed in the time periods of the nineteen forties where gender politics were a thing, racial politics were a thing. And that's why you really don't see a lot of Port Vile being done nowadays, which is unfortunate because he had some amazing work. But the problem is, is that his shows are so heavily dated um, that they, they prevent from being done. So my question is, with this one, do you think it could still be done today? And I, th- I think so because of toxic gossip of social media that we have nowadays we still have karens like the joneses just saying nasty disgusting things and i mean and i love the talk that uh i think is mr kaplan the older jewish father had with mr morant on how to raise a child that is very much prevalent today on yes how to be strict with a child but how to you know let them grow and not be a dictator to your own child um, so with all that being said, do you think this piece still holds up in 2023? Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's a bunch of stuff that they said that I'm like, oh, this is still happening 80 years later or 90 years later from like when this is set. Um, and like, hell, this is the 2018 production. So clearly it's still happening. Uh, I saw on the Wikipedia page that, there was a performance in Leeds on BBC Radio in 2020. So it's still happening. I feel like this is one of those ones that you're like, this is the serious time for opera. And I don't know how they should, how they would market it. 
but like that's not my job <laughs> i'm just here to talk about talk about what i saw <laughs> and, and that's all, that's but that's the trick with every single theater now is marketing we're um it's a very difficult time for theater and unless you're doing escape to margaritaville or tarzan or you know any of those i call cotton candy shows it's really hard to do a full-fledged thing like this with a large cast and try to get people in especially like, based on a popular um ip i feel like though this can't have a high concept like you know how they get really there's a lot of shows especially shakespeare you do like a high concept um there was a production of la boheme that they set on the moon but like i feel like this one though you have to stay true to it the only yeah. thing conceptually i think you can go with is the set which is what they did in this production yes um so traditionally as you know um in almost every single production up to this one the set has for major productions that is the set has been a literal recreation of a front of an apartment building in new york city this one is interesting and I think they took inspiration from a line Langston Hughes had when he was talking with Court Vile about the lyrics for Sam's big aria called Lonely House. Um, he said that to Sam, the house should feel like a prison. And with this production, I think they took Langston Hughes's words uh... and they made that set look like a prison. And you can see in, in all, and the set looks like prison bars and how everyone in that a tenement is literally trapped in this disgusting, rusty, orange, concrete jungle. I liked it because, you know, they were able to take the large cast that they have and were like, now you're going to, we're going to fill the space, but like logically. So like somebody is sitting in a chair in one of the floors or like they're doing laundry. So it like made a beautiful picture but it wasn't too busy or because yes. like if they if they were to do it with like full um not like like full like what a building looks like on the outside i think it'd just be too boring yeah i i would agree with that sometimes well it also depends on how you use the space if you just use the flats of the, of yes. the tenement. also what i like about it is that it's very exposed so you can see what's going on and i think that's one of the themes especially unfortunately with Mrs. Morant of how exposed her uh, relationship is with the milk collector. <laughs> That's a weird job. <laughs> Cause like also in the, in the show, they cast somebody to be a milkman. So I got a little confused there and I was like, wait, isn't that the guy that she's no, it's not the guy that she's sleeping with. It's a different job entirely. <laughs> okay. So is this the only production though that you've seen of it or have you seen other there um, are two other productions that I have seen on online, and I saw a couple of college productions do it. Um, the other one was from, I think it was the English National Opera in the 1980s, and the Houston, the Grand Houston Opera in the early 2000s. Those both of them are available on YouTube, and they do a very traditional style. Were they uh, also highly choreographed? Um, no. This one is very highly choreographed compared to okay. other productions, which do a traditional park and bark and just save the dancing for Moonface Starry-Eyed. And usually for Moonface Starry-Eyed, it is just between uh, the boy and the girl. But this one I thought was interesting that they brought in more dancers. 
Yes. And I wasn't sure, though, if the other dancers were supposed to be like the mirror image of them. I think it's like their friends that they go out to go dancing. The party, with yeah. But like I sometimes and it's like in Catch Me If You Can, the song, I just felt like the choreography kind of detracted in some parts because they did a lot of like, I don't know how to describe it, like a lot of hand movements with the kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also it's like kids, kids are hard to work with because you, well, why have... do you think they're only in one number in this darn thing. Well, and then you've got Willie who pops in and out and the whole time just like I roll my eyes when he goes on stage. Why is that? I, he's I don't know if it's the actor or if how he's written, but like he seems super annoying to me. Well, he's a little boy. We're all annoying at that age. And but now if you I've watched the opera again in preparation for last night and I was thinking about the character of Willie actually and watching him and being so nasty to his well you also understand why he's so cranky it's because people make fun of him for his mother's so no wonder he's terribly cranky and then that poor moment when Mrs. Morant sings a boy like you it is the last time Willie ever sees his mom alive and when you know that and you listen to a boy like you yeah now I, it makes sense. I got choked up. And here's the sad thing. is like you don't really see Willie after. What the sad thing is, and what they did brilliantly, is right after Mrs. Morant um, dies, you see Willie come back on stage, and Sam stops Willie. And it's like, hey, let's go have a talk. And you never see Willie again in the rest of the opera because it's about Rose. Um, but you wonder what happens to Willie, and how does he process what happened? Because oh, it's... It's just terrible to think about it. So the mom dies. The dad is off. It gets carted off to jail because they find it's, him. No, goes to the electric chair. So he says, we don't actually know what ha- We just see well, him in they handcuffs. They keep on saying, that he's going to go to the electric chair. And then, then he says, I'm going to, I think I'm going to the electric chair. I think we're all, I think we know where he's going. So the fate of Rose and Willie are never really. Well, sad. Rose is kind of, she's like, I'm just going to go away. I'm going to go restart my life somewhere outside of New York. But we don't know if she takes Willie along or she leaves Willie. <laughs> we we really don't know. It got me. It also got me thinking. I was just like, now that the murder happened, like she probably can't go back into the apartment to get anything. Um, she, uh, she heeds Sam's sister's advice to like leave and not take Sam with her. But also, like she needs to. Rose needs to figure herself out. I feel like. Yes, especially after everything that happens, I think the only possibility for her is to start life anew. So I had a question, actually, about Rose's end. Um, You know, in a traditional musical or musical comedy, uh, boy and girl get together. But for this one, they don't get together at the end. And Rose ditches Sam to find her own path. Does this pass the Alison Bechtel test that she didn't need a man in order to... um, complete her life journey i mean yeah and like the guys that she goes with like that are uh, around her represent like three different types of men it feels like like you have you can't you can be the mistress you can be in a uh an abusive relationship because that's with what's his name the douchebag or 
like you meet the nice guy, but it's also at like the worst time of your life. Cause like yeah. Sam is a nice guy. He's, he's the sweetest. He looks after uh, Willie sometimes. Cause like, especially like Willie gets in a couple of fights that, or we get, there's that one fight scene after catch me if you can, that Sam like stops and calms him down and everything. But like, it's literally the worst time in her life. <laughs> well, and, and that's always the case, right? The one that's always right for us we don't realize at the time or is right for us. Yeah. Something just happens and the cards just don't line up. I also, I'm not going to lie. I could not get over that performer's accent. Cause I was like, you clearly are a Spaniard trying to be an American. Uh, but, and there's also like, I think the man who comes to dispossess one of the tenants, um, he has a very thick Spanish. accent. Oh, sure. Yes. But I'm very much sure that if, I was German and I went to go to the Met Opera to watch Tristan und Zolda and I watch an American speak and sing in German. That's the same reaction. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I was, but I was just like, oh, the accents, because uh, there's they they try to do a lot of like the tough New York accent. <laughs> I was just like, don't just don't just be be who you are but yeah but it's always but it's also an opera house. So I give leeway to that. And I will have to say, I don't know how much of the cast is from madrid or spain but you have to admit for a majority of them they're not only do they have to sing in english and act in english they also have to do an accent so that's like two layers above what you usually have to do and i have to applaud them on that especially since they're doing like an italian accent they're doing a swedish accent the german accent a german accent just so we can understand which ethnicity these tenants are yeah and like the is it the german neighbor is married yeah so there's a german neighbor married to an italian man <laughs> and i was just like there's so many accents going on and it it was interesting though that as a show the his uh, the latin spanish uh accent people don't show up until the end and i was like there's a lot of like Latinx people here in New York. I mean, granted, this is modern day, but I would have assumed that there would have already been a Latin family in the tenement house. But it was very, it was very interesting to me that I was like, oh, you wait, okay, you got a lot of, you got, we have a lot of the melting pot here in the two, two buildings, or is it one building? I think it's two. I think it's two. I, I did also like that it was only two days. Like in the like, this whole thing takes place in the course of forty eight hours. It and then at the end, everything just it feels like it just restarts. Yeah, because the like, with the reprise of "Ain't It Awful" the heat and like Mrs. Jones doesn't learn anything, and they just go back to squabbling about how awful the heat is, and it just well, that's just, just life. Terrible cycle. That's just life. Life just goes on. Well, you live in New York. Is is your tenement like that in the summer? You have a couple of murders and you just keep on going with your life. Uh, I take the fifth on this one, officer. <laughs> no, as you can hear, my AC is on because it is hot out here in this building. So I was like, I, I, I understand the the heat that they're talking about. And like, is it Porgy and Bess that they also complain about the heat and how like that helps with the tension of things? Well. I would say that ain't it awful the heat is a more um 
is a more direct version of summertime from Porgy and Bess, while in Porgy and Bess, the summertime is romantic and brings new birth, while in street scene, the summer and the heat builds and creates tension, especially with the tenants and the rants. There's one line that I think Mrs. Jones was complaining about something, and Mr. Jones just goes, ah, you're just feeling the heat. So it, you're watching all these people in a pressure cooker and seeing what boils. Yeah, because, like, I wonder if it wasn't so hot out, if the events that happened would happen. Yes, I'm sure everyone's a lot calmer when it's colder. Oh, yeah, totally. So the moral <laughs> of the story is global warming is terrible and we're all doomed. Yes. Um, <laughs> I did like, though, that the, the Mr. Morant is a stage uh, uh, crew person. Cause I was like, Oh, that that's like interesting that like we're in New York, obviously there's Broadway. They talk about the out of town tryout that he's going to with this, whatever show is. And I was like, that's, that's a cool little like meta moment in, the, in this show. And I will have, and while we're on him, I have to commend this actor's performance of Mr. Morant. Now, traditionally in other productions, Mr. Morant is a little bit like Judd Fry from Oklahoma, in which he's just the brooding, angry baritone, screaming and yelling and all over the place. And he, it's obvious, he's just raising his hand saying, hi, I'm the villain. But just like Oklahoma, um, in the 1999 uh, RNT production, they humanized Judd Fry, um, Shuler Henley's performance, humanized it and made him more um, down to earth. And they did the same thing here, with Mr. Morant in other productions of street scene, he's just angry and brooding and just, ah, oh, get off with you, get out of my way. But this one, you see him, especially when Willie comes back, you see him trying to work through problems. And his first reaction isn't to be angry or mean. It's trying to understand, but he just can't work through it. And then he just lashes out to anger, which I just really appreciate that he put in that, those acting choices into Morant. Yeah, and it also feels like um, he learns all about this, uh, about his wife and everything, and then he just becomes the raging alcoholic. It's not like he was always one, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, he like, feels pain too, and he puts his pain in the wrong path. Yeah, and so like with this performer's version of it, it's like you go on a journey with him, Rather than he's starting at 100 and just keeps at that. Yes. Because, you know, he doesn't conceivably know that his wife is cheating on him. He gives her the benefit of the doubt until. Right. It's not in, It's not until we actually see her be like, I'm off to the market after she runs into what's his, what's his name? The one that she's sleeping with. The milk collector. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well he he's like, I'm off. He's like, I'm off to go somewhere. And she's like, I'm off to go to the market. Wink, audience. <laughs> That's how I read it anyway. That it was like, I'm about to go have sex. Goodbye. And I'm grateful that um, they gave her an aria to explain how she got to this place and why she goes to have an affair. Um, and it, But the one thing I don't like about it is that, well, traditionally in other productions, her big aria, Somehow I Never Could Believe, is sung as a solo on stage. But in this one, she sings it to the tenement people around her. 
which I think is wrong because if she sings, she if she sings the song to them, then the neighbors would understand why she she's doing the things she is. But it also could be that she sings them, she sings the song to the tenements, pleading her case, and they still don't want to listen. And they still go in to get a load of that, and they still gossip, 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 because they refuse to believe it. It, it could work either way, but I prefer the latter, where she's just alone on stage singing the aria. Uh, although when we get to lullaby at the end, this is another one where I'm assuming it's one of those pick me up numbers that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Although those two performers are serving everything, <laughs> like they they are giving you all of the gossipy Karens of the world. I was just I was it was another number where I'm like, why are you, why is this here? Yeah. Like and we could have. I was rewatching this. So I was rewatching Street Scene last night in preparation for this. And I usually hate Lullaby. I'm like, come on, do we really need this? This is not necessary. And then I was thinking about um it it's a it, it serves a bigger purpose, I think, especially right now. I was it made me think of the Titan implosion by the Titanic wreck and how that was such an awful yes. tragedy with five people dying, and regardless of what hubris there was or how much money was paid, at the end of the day, five people died horribly in a very tragic way. And what did social media and TikTok do? They started making fun of this very serious situation in which people died and they laughed and they made memes. And to me, that's what the nurses were doing. We have this horrible murder in which a mother of two children dies by their father. Right. And what did the nurses do? Oh, I want to see the tenement where they were killed. Oh, look, isn't this cute, baby? Oh, I want to see the blood. So to me, I, I realized the importance of that number. It's a lot smarter than I think I initially gave it credit for. The one thing, it, though, that detracted me... Satire. The one thing that detracted me, though, is that the whole point of the show is that it takes place in two days. And I feel like they got the newspaper... Like, this should have been the third day or something. Yeah, I feel like it, it should be three days. And I wonder if it is actually three days instead of two. But according to Wikipedia and the Court Vile Foundation, it literally happens midday. But I guess for that moment, we we suspend disbelief that newspapers came out early. I mean, I mean yes, I, I'm of two minds where I'm like, yes, we need to suspend disbelief. But also, like, why are they showing up at this moment? <laughs> it's just, it's just, again... Th- I feel like it, it's just the concept. I feel like, though, if they were to make it more like an evening time, it would make more sense. We're like the evening paper or something, because that's a thing. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it is the evening paper. Okay, then if that's the case, then I, I buy it and it makes sense. It, but like those ladies were giving everything. <laughs> I loved it. I loved their performances of it. <laughs> yes yes they were very funny they're they were like we're we're clearly having the little bassinets and just we're just gonna talk to nothing sleep baby sleep your daddy is a drunk <laughs> um oh okay so in the beginning of act two the garbage cans were moving yes did you yeah. see that yeah, they were they were attached to the set and they moved. 
because like it looked like there was a guy who like as as part of like us getting what what uh, being welcomed back into the show and everything they're setting the scene and creating you know it's the second day and this guy comes home drunk but it looked like they were moving it's just like i don't this i don't understand i think it's only for this production though like i, I would assume think... it, yeah yeah it's only for this production okay cuz i was just like there are a couple moments like that uh where again it just took me away like the core the over choreographed nature of it especially when we get to what was that one song uh wrapped in a ribbon and tied in a bow yes which again but that but then again there's there's constant shifts in musical styles and musical idioms so like with the ice cream sextet you have a donizetti tarantella and then with wrapped in a ribbon and tied in a bow, you have your traditional musical comedy Rodgers and Hammerstein number. And then you go to We'll Go Away Together, which is of Viennese uh, Straussian waltz. So there's always changing rhythms. And the, the choreography for wrapped in a ribbon and tied in a bow is strictly musical comedy land. Like there are a lot of things that happen in this, like the graduation that, of that number, the funeral that Rose goes to, where I'm just like, why is it just these one-off characters, like, these one characters going to things, like, who, who's the funeral for, and why isn't her whole family going? Like, we have a graduation, and they go to school the next day? What is this? It's a busy life in New York. <laughs> things happen left and right, you know that. And then there's the, oh, oh my god, I hated uh, when a woman has a baby. Oh, you hated it? Why is that? It's just because he's being a man, where he's like, oh, men have it worse. Well, that's part of the comedy is that he doesn't understand the the labor of yes, but what uh, women but go through. That I mean, that's why I I because I, I, I literally wrote, "You're right, men have it wrote worse." Eye roll, like <laughs> fuck it. that character though. Well, I mean, I maybe I mean not to say that women have it easier, but you know, he does make some points that it is harder because he's the one who has to stay up all night be with her, feel the stress, get the things, call the doctor. Like he just has, he deals with all the stress and she deals with all the physical pain. Having babies isn't easy on anyone. That's the moral of what a woman. But like that, that was another example where I, it's of the time where there's the, the sexism of like the quote man's place and the quote women's place. It felt like, and especially with Rose speaking out against men and them being like, shut up, doll, or or yeah. something along those lines. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. And this is still, ha- and again, this is still happening today. Yeah. Well, I never saw it that way. I just saw it as like a simple comedy number of, oh, he thinks he has a difficult. Boy, does he not know. Oh, no, but that I, I that I saw. But I, there was a couple like, um, what, like, wouldn't you like to be on Broadway? I wrote this song makes me sick more because of Harry's intentions. It's he's very much uh, the big bad wolf and Rose's little red riding hood. But luckily this little red riding hood knows what's up. And then I wrote puppy because there's a dog. I'm so excited. Yep, that's the one thing about street scene in every production. There is a real life dog. That, uh, has. that was a well-trained dog too. I have to say. I don't know if you ever worked I mean, with animals bring horses on stage. and camels on to Radio City. Why can't they bring a dog? Dogs, though, I feel like are one more so get distracted. 
easily than a horse. That's fair. But like that was one well-trained dog. I do have like give them credit because it it hit its <laughs> she put it on its mark and it hit its mark and then they walked off together and without it causing a ruckus in this <laughs> filmed production. Yes. <laughs> um, I feel like I need to give this one another chance. Like no, that's totally it. fair. It has for this one. It took me a couple of watches to fully appreciate it and understand it. Um, I think it's definitely a good rewatch, especially after some of the points we talked about. But I feel like I definitely got a lot of West Side Story, not because it's set in New York, but just literally, what was that one song? Uh, We'll Go Away Together. It felt a little like somewhere. Yes, very much so. And which one came first? Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, like... Like we said, this was also, well, no, this came before uh, Kiss Me Kate, right? Yes, about two years before Kiss Me. Okay, because like that, uh, the moon face and starry eyed really did feel like. Too darn hot. Yeah, because it was it, just because of the, um, the, de- the choreography. And then like, I like that they turned it into a spectacle. Even though I don't like the number within this within the storytelling, I do like though that they created a spectacle out of it and and made it seem a little more dreamlike and like we're after the new yes. American dream. and they were drinking so they imagine this heightened version of New York and I love how sexy the number is. You usually don't get how sexy it is. You usually just get polite boogie woogie dancing. But this one, you see her garters. They are showing their legs. They're showing their panties. I found it to be very sexy, which is what the number needs to be. Oh shit! I was I'm looking at the play, and it is a large cast. So like, for the, it, it's not that they added more characters. They probably did here and like the little characters here and there, but like, it comes already with a huge, huge cast. Wow. Yeah, because that's the, one of the tricky things why only opera companies do it. It's because of how darn big the cast is. There's no really, there's not really a way to shrink it down because everyone needs to be a different tenant in the apartment building. Well, so uh, the opera premiered on Broadway, actually, in 1947. Well, this is also at a time when operas were welcomed and allowed on Broadway, you know, the right. Council, the Medium by Giancarlo Minotti came out in the same season. Then we had Mark Blitzstein's Regina. And this was like the golden age of opera on Broadway. And we really didn't see, we don't really see operas. We see stuff like it now and again, but not often. I think the last American opera that ever premiered in New York was Intimate Apparel last year at Lincoln Center. But it was operas like this mm-hmm. street scene and the council and Regina that allowed things for like the line of the Piazza and Candide and Sweeney Todd to happen on Broadway. It, it, if it wasn't for these operas, those shows would never have been greenlit. And like, d- do you feel like though, if this was to be re- revived here in New York, it would oh, be, Lincoln would Center it be a cheer. That's my dream. <laughs> okay. Uh, with Kelly O'Hara. Kelly O'Hara as Mrs. Morant. Totally. Done. I would love that actually. <laughs> Cause I was, I was looking at the production history on the Wikipedia page and 
like, oh, Catherine Zeta-Jones was in a production? Sweet. Yep, she was in the uh, 1999... Uh, 89. 89, uh, English National Opera. And it was that um, that Rob Marshall saw her do and dancing that allowed her to do Chicago. Where she played Mrs. Jones. No, Catherine so, Jones played uh, the girl who was dancing in Moonface Starry-Eyed. Oh, Mae Jones. Sorry. I yeah. just saw Jones and I thought it was the yeah, mom. She, she played uh, Mrs. The Jones' daughter. daughter who dances in Moonface Starry-Eyed. Got it. There's video of her doing it online. Mm. Yeah. But I feel, yeah, I'm like, why hasn't this been... It feels like it's been done around the world. I don't think it's been done it's again done in New York. Yeah, it's been done randomly by opera companies. Oh, sorry. Has- New York, the New York City Opera revived it uh, three times in 1959, 1979, and 1990. Yeah, but so. now New York City Opera doesn't exist, and now the Met has taken over the spot of what New York City Opera used to be doing. But I, f- I mean... I think it would be interesting if like encores did this, but I don't think they can because it's just too many people. And and well, encores is not doing forgotten shows anymore. They are now doing college shows like Piazza and Titanic and The Life and <laughs> they, they and Into the Woods. They change they change their directory a, a little bit. But I mean, yeah. But I feel like this has life, and I would like to see it live because maybe it's a different, maybe it's just a different feel, like. Watching the uh, taped production versus seeing it live, obviously you get, you don't really like. You don't feel the energy in the room. Yeah, 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 and like you can kind of feel it because they show you in like a film per- version, they show you what they want, what you want to see. But I feel like on this one, they focus too much on like the not important stuff while somebody else is singing. Oh, you didn't like the cinematography too much not really i mean there's moments where i was just like i don't understand why you're focusing on that child when somebody else is singing something important elsewhere that's fair um but that's just again just me i what and that's all we do here is talk about our opinions uh do you have anything else though you want to talk about before we get into sharp and flat for those who are interested in viewing this um it is available on broadway hd to watch and there's also an opera streaming service called q that it is available on or if you want to buy the dvd it is available on amazon so it used to be on youtube but it got taken off but if you're interested also in seeing street scene as itself there are two productions on youtube to go watch but this one uh, you will either need to go on the streaming services or buy it on amazon and what i like about street scene very much so is that it's not like our contemporary musicals we have nowadays like something like uh in the Heights, you might say, where it takes place on a street within a cramped neighborhood of New York and it showcases characters who have hopes and dreams of getting out of their neighborhood with their newfound loves and features gossipy neighbors. And in the second act, there's a death of a character who has been has nothing but pain and agony in her life. And there are songs about how hot it is and that the only relief is a frozen sweet. So, of course, I am not saying in any way whatsoever that this is like In the Heights at all. Not at all. <laughs> oh, my God. You're right. But I think it's interesting that you and I both listed future projects set in New York that I don't know if they were influenced by street scene, but they have to be influenced by street scene. Like in the Heights in particular, I wonder if Lynn, I mean, Lynn's a smart guy, but I wonder if 
street scene was the basis for hmm. the nods or laid the foundation. I tried looking it up. I didn't really see anything. But if, no. you, if you if you look at street scene and you look at In the Heights, it makes you wonder. And if companies can do In the Heights, they God for sure can do street scene. But I feel like though street scene, like you said, you need the opera voice. You can't just put anybody in it. You need somebody who can carry those notes. And that's why it really doesn't get done in musical theater houses and it's been relegated to operas. But in America, which is, I don't know why, where opera houses are not big fans or really produce American operas and they do their traditional umbalo and mascara and Italian operas and your, yeah. your magic flute. They do the same six shows. But apparently there's a list there of over... 2,000 or 1,000 operas that have been written that have never been sung since their premiere. I'm grateful that we have a couple of operas that still hang around here and there. These are American operas? No, no, not American. Uh, just operas in general from all over the world throughout the centuries. Again, it, I think it just comes down to marketing. Like this one, I feel like we could still do it because the themes are still relevant. Like the... Um, like with what we talked about with the internet nowadays where the the pick a little ladies are basically twitter or reddit or something yeah and the nurses are the tiktokers and memers making fun of serious situations yeah so it's like you can do it i just feel like i hope if a future production does it that they keep with the 40s like they don't update it because that's what makes this important because this is a time before cell phones before a lot of technology and that's what makes it so interesting that this is before social media which means that you had to make friends with your neighbors and you had to talk to your neighbors about things right and like Uh, and like as much as they talk shit about each other at least there's uh the the one where that has the baby you never see her but I mean, they're there to help her out. You know, they like the um, uh, Anna goes to the store to get chicken for them because clearly they're going to be busy and can't make food at the time. Yeah, this was before DoorDash and you had to help each other out. Right. So I'm still a little on the fence about the show as a whole, but like there, there are things about it that I did like. And through this discussion, it did help a little bit more. I'm not going to lie, because I feel like watching things by myself, I can't really turn to somebody and be like, did you just see that? Or like, what is with this choreography here? The the hand jive that the kids are doing. I think one of the things also that keeps it from being produced, especially in a post-2020 world, is that this is a very specific story about specific white ethnicities, Swedes, Italians, Germans, and although there is an African American character, he's the he's the a janitor of the janitor who's happy with his humble work and rich with the wisdom of the ages. So that might be one of the things that keeps it back. And interestingly enough, this character of the janitor was supposed to end Act One with a, a gigantic, glorious number called a uh, a big giant sky or a great sky, and that was cut out of town. 
And what's oh. left now in Act One is this small little reprise of I Got a Marble and a Star. So that's maybe a reason why it might be tricky to do it nowadays, only because it deals, although it deals with ethnic ethnicities, it deals with very specific ones. I feel like, though, if you wanted to do it, the Marants can be any ethnicity because there's that's... nothing specific about them. Right. Yes. Besides, yes. besides that, they're a nuclear family. Like you are, you are correct. I don't know if the script says that they're a specific ethnicity, but I don't. But I don't. But compared to some of the other characters, where their ethnicity is tied to their character, I don't think that really applies to the Morants. Like I would love to hear Pretty Yende sing Rose. I, now that I, I now I want that. Now that Ruth, I want Ruth and Miles as Mrs. Morant, or Audra as Mrs. Morant. Fuck Audra as oh my god Audra and Pretty Ende yes yes I'm here for all of this and then Ruthie Ann Miles can be uh uh somebody else well Mrs Jones great <laughs> on we it. Got it on we it, got it. <laughs> all right let's get into sharp and flat shall we sharp flat. So in this section, we're going to highlight some moments whether or not we talked about it. If we liked it, it's sharp. And if we didn't didn't like it, I thought it could change. It's flat. (laughs) Um, What do you want to start with? Let's start with some sharps, baby. Okay. Um, Um, What do you go first? I sharp the set design. I haven't done a lot of film stage productions on here. And so, like, to think about the set design and it's like basically that's it like it's just the two towers of a building uh, of uh, the tenements so it's beautiful and simple but not simple you know what i mean like it looks simple like we could see into the households and everything but like a lot of thought and a lot of time went into creating the world that we're in um less is more like that is a beautiful example of less is more and also although this is not a movie musical it is an accessible pro shot recorded version that i thought it would be okay to bring on the show since you've had guests talk about other pro shot things like liza with a z uh the 1994 carousel and the greatest american musical ever diana and hamilton we did oh and hamilton so there you go I get it. I I I can wave that card. And well, say, counts. Well, so I mean, obviously they did turn the play into a movie, but like I feel like the opera can be a movie. Yeah, it could. You would have to be very smart about it and find a really good director because nowadays movies are either hit or flops. So right. you you have to. Have you noticed that? Them. I mean, you. I'm sure you go on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, there's no movie that's just good it's either it's a god-awful film or it's the it has a 90 percent rating you know what i mean yeah there's not there's nothing that's like 65 percent where you're like you're fine you're fine yeah <laughs> it's like the new indiana jones is like 50 percent, while some other movie is like 90 percent anyway um we're, we're off topic and then my my last sharp i only have two sharps for this uh my last sharp is for patricia reset she carried the movie the the show um i don't know where she's from but she gave a conceivable american accent if she's not american and if she is american kudos uh <laughs> kudos for being you um and you know she 
She acted the shit out of everything. Like there's some people in it who sang the shit out of things. And then there's some people who acted the shit out of things, but they never did both very well. Well, but she was with that in opera. And that's what opera is currently working on. Yes. Yeah. So, but like she was the happy medium where she was like, no, I'm going to be a actor, singer, singer, actor, whatever you want to do first. You know, like she did it. She sold everything. Um, and like it's it feels like that's a hard role to do very like, much so like rose might be a little bit more difficult because obviously you have to like go through a lot more but like the n- subtle nuances that anna has i feel like because she starts off as one of the pick a little ladies and then it's they talk about her and she is like going through every- anyway i could go on and on about this what are your sharps um for an, uh, my sharps are I, I had one for the set as well. Beautiful. Um, for an opera cop company, there are some great actors like Mrs. Morant and the gentleman who played Frank Morant. I thought he was he was the best Frank and that was the best Mrs. Morant. Some really good acting for an opera company. Um, I also wanted to give a sharp to the accent work like we talked about earlier. Um, you could tell that they are they are putting in the work and each one has a different character, so good props to the the accent coach. And another sharp for me is the pacing and tempos of this particular production. In other recordings and other filmed recordings of street scene, because it's an opera, sometimes the conductors like to take their time so we can fully hear it. But what I loved about this production is their pacing and their tempos. It's it is go, 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 especially the the overture. Usually that's played a little bit slower, but this one, they're like, we are a subway ready on the move. Um, and what I really like about it is it it just the, it kept on going and flowing. And I think that's what Kurt Vile's intention was in which he wanted there to be seamless transitions between speaking and singing. And not letting there be too many applause breaks. So so street scene has a relentless energy to it and it keeps the action going forward. And I thought that this production in particular did a very excellent job of doing that. I do have one natural. Do you have one natural? I do, actually. So every once in a while uh, in this section, uh, I have what we call a natural. It's neither a sharp nor a flat, but like still need to talk about it. For me, though, it's the dialogue. Hmm. I was hoping that they would go full ham and sing and make it recitatives or something. Cause like, it is important to have those dialogue moments, but like, I don't know. I just wish it was sung personally. Just it so this way we can. Because Elmer Rice, who wrote the original play was on board as one of the lyricists. Mm-hmm. And apparently he was a nightmare to work with. Each time they would trim a line or they would cut a line or they would do something with a line, he would always be like, well, when I did the play, that line was a national treasure. How dare you cut it? So a lot, there's a bunch it's, of dialogue because he wanted to preserve his precious baby. It, but like, it's not that I didn't like the dialogue. It's just that I wish they went full opera and made it singing. Yes. Well, that also comes from the opera comique of France in which there is opera, but with dialogue scenes. Same thing as we talked uh, about the Daisiba Fluta, that there are 
great opera arias, but there's also dialogue in between the numbers. So it's not unnatural for opera to have dialogue. No, yeah, but I feel like with the this... musical, dialogue is first and sort of songs are second. In opera, it's the other way around, where songs are first and then the dialogue just connects the small little tissues together. But I feel like with this property, or at least in this production, I can't speak to other productions um, or it as a whole, but it feels like the dialogue and the arias are equal. Like they have the great singing for the arias, but I just wish that like, I, I don't know if it, maybe I don't want it to be sung, but I wish there was like continuous music underneath it. Maybe some. Well, did you notice there was a bunch of underscore in the dialogue? Well, that's one of the things Street Scene is also known for is that in a bunch of the scenes, there is underscore. There are only a couple of moments where there are actual scenes. And I appreciate Vile for doing that also because he was working at Hollywood at the time. So he understood underscoring and he put some of that into this. Okay. But like, there's just something about the dialogue that just, I was like, we're in opera land. We're not in musical theater land. We're in opera land. And it just, it, or, or maybe I'm just naturaling the fact that we call it, we're calling it an opera or it's classified as an opera, but it's clearly an operetta. That's the other thing about American operas is that opera snobs have a hard time labeling what a piece is. So it's the same thing with Candide. Is that an opera? Is that an operetta? Is that a musical comedy? Is Light in the Piazza an opera or an operetta? Or is it a musical with opera singing? And Sweeney Todd, like... Les Mis. Sweeney, Les Mis. That's my argument forever and always. <laughs> I don't no. know what it is. <laughs> uh, but what is your natural? My natural is also the book. But in particular... There are sometimes, well, throughout this entire thing, there's always a, oh, look, here comes this person. Oh, look, what that person, what are you doing here? Oh, look, here he comes now. It's very old fashioned theater of presenting a person on stage. Now, sometimes it is necessary when new people come in, but when it's like, I feel like they do it a little too much here and there sometimes. What? Um, what do you mean? Like, oh, Mrs. Morant. What? Are you, oh, here he comes. Oh, look, there she comes now. Hey, where's the policeman? There he is right now. There, there's a lot of those like old timey play introductions that make it feel dated for me. Um, sometimes they are necessary in order to introduce new characters, but sometimes it could be a little bit of overkill. Uh, okay, let's get into flats. My first flat is for Willie, and I wrote this at his entrance because he was a little shit to his mom. And, like, I get it, that's the way the character's written, but, like, I hate that kind of kid. Because, <laughs> like, we were even... all that kind of kid. We were all assholes. To I know, I know. Your mom was going to die in the second act. Yeah, I'm sticking to it. Uh, I also flatted, now, this is so dumb, but I'm going with it. The way that this production, or at least this film, this pro shot started. There was the family breakdown at the beginning that, to me, it felt useless because, like, I forgot immediately who everyone was. So I was just like, why did you even have this in the in the pressure? Well, at least they didn't warn you. They're like, hey, here comes all the people you're about to meet. You're right. There'll be a quiz afterwards. But, like, it feels like the the tree in um, War and Peace where you have to like follow all the new people and their nicknames and all that. And you're like, I don't know who these people are. And then luckily they did that old timey introduction theater thing where they're like, Hey, here comes Mr. Morant from work. He's a stagehand. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and then my my last plot. I'm sorry. I hated Moonface and Starry Eyed. I don't understand what it has to do with the overall story. I get it. I get it after you well, said it was it was like to pick yeah. me up and do all that, but I was just like, why is it here? But it, it but it also comes at a time when, you know, especially since it premiered on Broadway, where you would have these random numbers pop out of nowhere, like the Manhattan song from Too Many Girls, or more contemporary esque is like Steam Heat or. Uh, right. who's got the pain from damn Yankees and pajama game, just like random musical numbers just for sheer entertainment. But I can understand from a contemporary musical theater standpoint where every song has to now be about the plot. It looks a little out of place, but also like it put emphasis on these two characters that I forgot immediately that who they were. Cause like, I, I didn't, I forgot that, uh, that was the Jones daughter and I don't care who he was. I don't even know who he was. And so it, but like He's basically it, the bow, but like it's, and, and because it comes after like such a dramatic moment that I'm like, that my emotions weren't ready to shift with it. You know what I mean? Right. So it, I mean, they did a they did a great job. It's the writing that I don't understand. That's, uh, that, that's more where I'm attacking it from. Not not the people who performed it. Because, like, fuck. They it's did placement great. in the script and its connection to the yeah. entire script. It's, it's like, I, to, again, go back to West Side. The movie moved Krupke and Cool because that made sense. Where they, where they took place in the film. In the show, they don't make sense where they are. So, like, I feel like if you put this... I mean, I feel like this could have been like a little later, like towards the end of the more more towards the end of the act or like the act one closer as like a spectacle number. But that's just me. What are your flats? I only have one, which is the death scene. Once Mrs. Morant gets shot and Frank runs, there's about two minutes of unnecessary dialogue while we wait for Rose to come and find out what happened. And I, I really don't like it because sometimes, and not even sometimes, every single t- production I've seen of it, they've played it for laughs. Like there's this little girl who's who went to the um, the Italian tenant to teach violin lessons, and she goes out and she's trying to get out of the apartment, but uh, the guy's saying don't leave, and that little section's usually played for laughs, and like the entire two minutes is. Everyone get away from the stoop. Everyone get away from the stoop. Yeah. You get back up there. Everyone away from the stoop. Where's the doctor? Everyone away from the stoop. It's just, I feel like. It's a little it, too long. It just need, It's too long. Once she gets shot, call the ambulance. Where is it? Rose appears. What happened? It's my mom. Start and then start the woman who lived up there. I feel like, and again, it, it's written very comedically. I just, I just wish that the the show would just allow the dramatic moment to be dramatic, and not weigh it down with dialogue and trying to be lighthearted and just go straight into the woman who lived up there. So, question: I don't know why this made me think of this. 
in We'll Go Away Together, when they start playing with the chalk and everything, is it supposed to be like them reminiscing on their childhood? No. Um, and this is just for this production. Usually in other productions, they are like traditional opera singers. They just hold each other in each other's arms and they and just sing. scream at each other. Yeah. Yes. Um, with this one, I think it was they were using the chalk that the children play with on the street and they were creating the life that they were going to build together. So you see Sam drawing a house, house. A, a flower with a Piccadilly fence. So that was the this director's concept on how to stage that number was to use the chalk children were and they are creating the world that they are going to get away to how old are they supposed to be like 20 18 yeah, i mean like sam's still studying to be a lawyer so he's like in his mid-20s and i'm sure rose is 20 or at least 18 yeah because she has a job and everything that yeah. and like because i was just watching it i was like is what is what is the deeper meaning <laughs> and i felt like i guess that's a that might be another flat for me like i feel like there are things that may have a deeper meaning, but I don't think they have a deeper meaning. Like and that's them- what I struggled with with street scene. It was like after watching the first time, I'm like, what was I supposed to learn from that? Yeah, it, the moral of the story: not to have an affair, or otherwise you'll get shot. Yeah. Uh, it's not so much a deeper meaning. And I found out that it's not about the Morants. The Morants are this, or you're just traditional opera watching people sh- suffer and die. The real message of the story is the how toxic gossip is and how that gossip eats away at people and makes them yes fall into despair uh would you add any of the songs or arias as i should say for this property to your life's playlist we sat in our snowy white dresses and then it was my turn to go your diploma they said and i took it wrapped in a ribbon and tied in a bow actually you know what hold on there is one song that is in my life's playlist that especially in san diego whenever it gets hot i always just hear in my head ain't it awful the heat ain't it awful (laughs) and i looking forward in the next 50 years when global warming comes to kill us that song will be playing very loudly in my head you'll be slow dancing to it right yes going delusional um there really it wasn't anything that I gravitated towards. Um, I, I would understand that. Yeah. I mean, like I did, I did like the singing in the ice cream sextet. I did like the singing in lullaby. I did, I did like their voices, but I don't think there's anything I would put on my life's playlist because like, man, I don't know. No, that, no, that, that that's like totally fair. Yeah. There's nothing like a, um, not Moonface Starry Eyed? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but Colden, we're done with the episode. We did it. We did street scene finally. We did it, we did it Joe. <laughs> do you what do you have to plug or promote? Nothing at this time. Okay. Just the socials? Yep, just the socials. And by the way, John, thank you for always having me on and watching weird, weird, obscure musicals. Uh, really appreciate you, buddy. Well, it's it's great because it it it's not the norm, and it proves that there is more out there than what than any nineteen eighty two and any two thousand fourteen. Yes, <laughs> yes, you're right. Um, if you know of a production of Street Scene happening somewhere, 
let us know. We'll we'll drop everything and go see it. Uh, you can email me at buttersongpod at gmail.com. Also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at buttersongpod. Um, or do you want to finance the Audra Pretty Ende version of it that we proposed? I'm here for well, the well, if if there are any rich producers out there, let, let let's talk. Talk with John. Hey, Mr. Producer, let's do let's make this happen. Um, and if you want to be part of next episode's conversation, we're gonna be doing all that jazz. Yeah. Take off with us. <laughs> well, Colden, thank you so much for making me watch something that is I mean, this is like not the weirdest thing you've made me watch. What what was the weirdest? Was it boyfriend or five thousand fingers? Five thousand fingers. At least the boyfriend made sense because it was that director. I knew what I was in for. <laughs> uh, and thank you everyone for listening, and bye for now. Special thanks to Justin Johnson for creating the podcast's artwork, and to Nick Bombasino for composing the theme song and the jingles in this podcast. And thank you to CastBox for hosting this podcast. Bye again, everyone, and have a musical day.